Today's reading is from the word from the word of God comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. Please follow along in your own Bibles on the screen behind me or listen as I read the scriptures. Once again, that's John chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. Following the reading, I invite you to respond in worship with the singing of the doxology. At that time, children are invited to join kids' crew through the door on your right. You're right, I guess. <laughs> um, hear the word of the Lord. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb and be born. Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with anyone born of the spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, Jesus said, and do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must lift up, be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, Anchor Bay Church. My name is Bryn. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm so glad to be worshiping with you this morning. It's so nice outside. I'm like loving all of this kind of warm fall weather. I hope you are too. Um, well, we like to start our sermons with a moment of silence, just to be quiet, to center ourselves. 
to think about what we are bringing into the room this morning, whether that's a, a challenging relationship or a situation or, or some word of hope that we want to hear from God. And we want to offer those things to God this morning, to the Holy Spirit, to speak to us through the scriptures. So I want to invite you to do that with me for a moment, and I will open us in a word of prayer after we've had a, a quick moment of silence. God, we thank you that you are a God who meets us exactly where we are, and that you do not shy away from our questions that you have given us a spirit of curiosity, and we pray that we would bring that curiosity with Nicodemus to you this morning, that we would be willing to explore the places that we don't understand who you are and what you do for us, and that this morning you would teach us a little bit more about what that looks like in our lives and how it can change who we are in our community and our world. We love you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last year I had coffee with a college student who wanted to know more about God. And it was an interesting conversation because she had grown up in the church. She had been to youth group. She had been part of a loving Christian family. She had heard all of the Bible stories. But she didn't know what it meant to have a relationship with God. She knew all about God, but she didn't really know God. Uh, last year, I was also texting with an old friend who graduated from a seminary with a Master of Divinity degree. At one point, he wanted to be a missionary or a pastor. He had traveled to war-torn countries to share the good news of the gospel. But when tragedy struck his own life, he got so shaken that he couldn't bring himself to believe in God anymore. And he dismissed his young faith as youthful, wishful thinking. A few years ago, I had dinner with a biblical scholar and his family. He had been called one of the world's leading experts, experts in the Old Testament. He teaches at a prestigious seminary. He's fluent in biblical Hebrew. He's written five books about how to study scripture. But during dinner, he made it very clear to me that he does not and has never believed in God. The stories in scripture had made it to his mind, but they had never clicked with his heart. So what about you? Lots of us, we know lots of facts about the Bible. We know, we might know all about Father Abraham and how, how he had many sons. We could sing you catchy tunes about wee little men named Zacchaeus. Maybe our first concert was Audio Adrenaline or DC Talk or Jars of Clay. Anyone? Mine was Audio Adrenaline. <laughs> but when it comes to the gospel message to what the good news actually is? Well, for lots of us, we're not totally clear on that. And what's worse than not really getting it is this feeling that we should get it, like everyone else does, right? I mean, some of us have sat in church since the day we were born, basically. And if anyone should be able to tell you what scripture and the gospel stories are all about, it's us, right? But lots of us have managed to miss it. And now we come to church, and we smile, and we act like Christians, but when we're honest, the good news of Jesus, it's like, it's like someone whose name we never got, but now it's too late to ask. And if that's you, you are not alone. And I am so glad that you are here. This morning, we're continuing in our year-long, but starting with this fall, sermon series on the Gospel of John. So if you put your Bibles away, I'd invite you to open those back up to me, to the third chapter in John's Gospel, to the passage that Sherry read for us a moment ago. We're going to start with verse 1 in a few minutes. And in this passage, we meet a man named Nicodemus. 
We don't hear a lot about Nicodemus in the Bible. He only shows up a few times in the Gospels. So it's easy to fill in a lot of blanks from our own imaginations, but we do know a few things about Nicodemus. So the first verse says this. It says, Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. Okay, so first thing, we know that Nicodemus was a Pharisee. And if you've been around church for a while, you know that Pharisees kind of get a bad rap uh, in the church. We've developed kind of all of these unfair stereotypes about Pharisees, but they were not the one-dimensional villains that we sometimes imagine that they were. 500 years before Jesus, there was a man named Ezra, and Ezra was a guardian of the law in post-exile Judea. Ezra took the law seriously. He knew it. He kept it. He taught it. And Pharisees were spiritual descendants of Ezra. A few hundred years later, they earned a nickname. They were called God's loyal ones. God's loyal ones. Isn't that a beautiful nickname? And then eventually, they became known as the Pharisees, which means the set-apart ones, the separated ones. They were the ones who were called out to be holy, to live out this law. Pharisees invested their lives in knowing and keeping and teaching the law of Moses down to the smallest dotted I and cross T. And it wasn't because they were just self-righteous hypocrites. I looked up in the dictionary, the word Pharisee literally has a translation hypocrite as as a part of it, but that's not the original intention of what the Pharisees did. When they were at their best, Pharisees loved the law because they loved God. And they loved the things that came from God, things like the law. So that's the Pharisees. When you think about Jesus, Jesus himself was a devout Jew. And when we look at some of his early sermons and his early teachings, some of them followed the Pharisees' teachings. So when we witness these conversations in the Gospels between Jesus and the Pharisees, sometimes we think about it as this, like, these big controversies or these, these battlegrounds between two opposing groups. And it was less like that and more like a family feud. They were having a Thanksgiving dinner and debating over politics. They loved each other. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, but more than that, he was a member of what's called the Jewish ruling council, or possibly what we sometimes call the Sanhedrin. This guy was a religious VIP. He had advanced degrees. He had honorary doctorates. He was on the cover of Forbes' top 100 most religious people in the world list. A greater Boston's patron saint is St. Patrick, but I've heard pastors around here say that it should have been Nicodemus. This guy was well-educated, he was well-respected in his field, and he had a lot to lose if people found out that he didn't know the answers. But always, it seems like there might have been this little voice in the back of Nicodemus's mind saying, you just don't get it yet. So Nicodemus, he gets curious. He's willing to ask some questions. He wants to understand And I got to respect this guy. It was dangerous for a person like Nicodemus to approach a person like Jesus and ask some questions about faith. An upstanding Pharisee such as himself would generally avoid the company of lesser religious figures, especially ones who had caused a ruckus in the temple by flipping over tables a while back. And yet Nicodemus, he has the courage to go even though he could be publicly scorned by his colleagues if they find out that he went to talk to Jesus. Now, in the church, we talk a lot about how Jesus spent time with people on the margins, right? We talk about how Jesus went to to the widows and, and kids and orphans, Gentiles, women, slaves. 
prostitutes, prodigals, tax collectors, and sinners. And all of that is true. But one of the things that I love about this story with Nicodemus is that Jesus doesn't only go to people on the margins. Jesus also spends time with people on the inside. He goes to the respectable religious people, the people who grew up in the faith, but who don't always get who he is or what he does or why it matters. And if I'm being honest, sometimes that's me. And maybe sometimes it's you. So Nicodemus, he worked up the courage to go ask Jesus some questions, to admit that he doesn't have all the answers. But he waits to go until most of the town is asleep. Everything's dark. No one's going to recognize that he's going to talk to Jesus. He finds Jesus in the middle of the night. This is the first instance of Nick at night. Thanks, I'll be here all week. So I'd invite you to pull up your big old leather chair, listen in on the conversation. Jesus has drawn a fire. He's put on a cup of tea. He's lit some candles. We have an image here that we're going to put up in a second. Our very own Samara Thomas, one of our youth group kids, made that. She spent some time studying this scripture passage, and she made this out of her study. So be sure and thank Samara if you see her. And yeah, let's give Samara a round of applause. Thank you, Samara. If you or your kid ever wants to do that, we love artwork. So please come talk to me. We would love to give you a scripture passage to think about and illustrate uh, to help our church enter into worship in a visual sense. So imagine Jesus is there with Nicodemus. And they sit down, they're having a conversation, and, and Nicodemus opens the conversation. He says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs that you are doing if God were not with him. Now, it's interesting, that use of the word we. Sometimes we can be kind of a power play, you know? Like, have you ever had someone confront you about something in your work or in your family, and they use the word we? Like, we all think this. It's not just me who thinks this. We all do. You know, me and everyone that I talk to, all those people whose names I'm not going to mention, but I want you to assume that it's a lot of us. We can be a bit of a flex. Whenever someone does something like that to me, I assume it's just them and the mouse in their pocket that mouse has got some opinions. And that's how Nicodemus starts the conversation. Maybe it's insecurity. Maybe he just feels awkward around Jesus and he's, he's trying to do a little power play. But he's essentially saying, he's saying we, you know, the ones on the inside, we've looked you up and down. And we've discerned that maybe you've got some things to say. Jesus doesn't worry about the flex. He just responds to the question that Nicodemus has not asked. He says, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Born again. Now that phrase has become very familiar in our world or in our country, and yet lots of us have never really picked up on what it means. You know, every week, some of you know about our sermon writing process. Every week our pastors have a meeting, we sit down, and we look at whatever scripture passage we're going to talk about in the next couple of Sundays and we think about what does this mean? What did this mean for the, the people who first received these letters? What can it mean for us in our context today? And when we looked at this passage in John 3, our pastoral team came up with a list of all the things that I should cover this morning that is mentioned in these 21 verses. So we've got light and dark, heaven and hell, the atonement, eternal life, baptism, the son of man, the trinity, justification, sanctification, regeneration, eschatology, God's judgment, the Holy Spirit, the law of Moses, 
The most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16, the kingdom of God. Is universalism true? Predestination, conversion, and snakes. <laughs> so hold on to your hats. we got a lot to cover this morning. Thankfully, one of the things about the way that, that I think is interesting about the way that the Bible was written is that it repeats itself a lot. And that's because the Bible was not meant to be read the way that most of us read it at home alone. Now, reading home alone, the Bible, has its merits, and I encourage that. Most of us these days are literate, and we have access to own our own Bibles. And if you don't have your own Bible, we would love to give you one as a church. So we want to remove that barrier for reading the Bible on your own. But all of that wasn't true at the time that the Bible was written. A lot of people were illiterate. They couldn't afford access to their own Bibles. And so whole communities would read it out loud together. And together they would figure out what does this mean for us as a whole community and as a society. So they would, they would have a reader who would come and read the scriptures out loud to them. And when you're listening to something that's read or being spoken out loud, it can be easy to zone in and out and miss some things along the way. I know how people listen to sermons. So the writers of scripture, they repeat themselves a lot so that if you miss something the first time, you could probably pick it up when it's written about again. So we're not going to try to unpack that whole list this morning. In fact, just this passage, these 21 verses, could probably be their own year-long sermon series. But as we continue with this gospel, the good news is that these themes are going to come up again and again, and we will have time to explore them along the way as we continue to unpack the scripture. So this morning, I just want to focus on one main key concept that comes up in this passage that gets really misunderstood. And before we're done, we'll also talk about snakes, okay? So the question I really want to focus on this morning is, what does that mean to be born again? Born again, because this phrase, you might have some associations with it. It has some baggage in our country these days. But when we peek under the hood, it's really a beautiful metaphor. This is one of those moments when the Bible uses feminine imagery to talk about who God is and what God is like. When you think about the Bible, the Bible was written by men in a very patriarchal society. So it makes sense that a lot of the imagery that we would pick up in the Bible comes from their traditional masculine images at the time. What is God like? God is like a warrior or a king or a father. And those are really helpful images and they help us uh, experience and describe aspects of God's character but alone, they are incomplete. We have all kinds of other images in the Bible to describe who God is, including some of these rich, beautiful, feminine images of what God is like. We have uh, God is like a hen comforting her chicks, a woman who's trying to find a lost coin, a woman giving birth to a baby. The words that get translated in this passage as born again also have a different meaning. They could be better translated as born from above, born from above. And every time the Gospel of John uses this kind of phrasing, that's what it means, from above. Essentially, you are meant to be born of God. So let's think about that for just a second. You have a distinct personality, right? But your identity was not formed and shaped in a vacuum. It was shaped also by your particular family, your culture, your country, your socioeconomic situation, how society interacts with people who have the color of your skin. 
For most of history, those things could determine a lot of other things about you, who you could marry, where you live, what job you had, even sometimes what religion you had. So you might inherit money or land from your family, but more than that, you also inherit values, worldviews, circumstances, ideas, emotional maturity or immaturity that you have to work through. A lot about our identities is determined by our nature, but a lot of it is also determined by our nurture, by the circumstances surrounding our birth. And when Jesus invites us to be born again, or born from above, he's telling Nicodemus, who is a law-loving Pharisee, that following God goes far beyond obeying the rules or following the law. The good news, the good news means that when we are born of God, we get a whole new identity, a whole new orientation. It's a whole new way of being in the world. And here's the interesting thing about birth. So how many of you have been present at a live birth? Everyone should raise their hands. You were all present at a live birth. <laughs> all right, so think back to when you were in the womb. Everyone got that memory? You can't, right? You were so small that you weren't even able to form memories yet. You were helpless. You were powerless. You had control over nothing. Your life, your growth, your being, it was all completely dependent on someone else. Somewhere, some woman brought you into the world. Before you could do anything about it, before you had control over anything, it was her food, her sleep, her protection, her work, her labor, her pain, her breath, her love that brought you life. Jesus is reminding Nicodemus of this deep truth about God and about us. God is the one doing the labor. God is the one doing the work. To be born of God is not something that we can just will in ourselves. It happens to us. Now, don't get me wrong. I have never been given birth, but I've been born, and I've heard some things. And I know that being born is hard work for both the mother and the baby. A baby can't choose to be born or be born by themselves, but the baby participates, even if that participation just means trusting the mother to do the work in the process. So it's like Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, God is laboring to bring you birth. Only God can accomplish this good work in you. Try trusting in God rather than trusting only in your ability to follow God. Come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Jesus is calling Nicodemus to let go. To let go of the notion that you can control all the outcomes. Let go of the idea that there is some way to be perfect, to obey the law, to interpret the law perfectly. Let go of the, the shame. Let go of the idea that you can somehow avoid sin or fix sin on your own. Trust in the work that is being done in you to bring you life. This is a powerful metaphor, but lots of us have missed it. Over time, the, the phrase born again has become a declaration about which theological or political team we are on. We can use it to label who's in and who's out. People call born-again Christians in some circles, it's like a badge of honor, and in other circles, it's a derogatory term. 
Other people use it as kind of a get-out-of-jail-free card. At some point in the past, they prayed a sinner's prayer, so now they don't have to worry about how they live or who they hurt. God is obligated to forgive them. And we can trace this distortion all the way back to medieval Europe when church leaders needed to figure out how they were going to pay for all of the lavish cathedrals that they were building, so they devised a plan. If you gave them extra money then God would forgive all your sins. In fact, they even came up with an a la carte menu where you could prepay for sins that you were planning to commit later. And in walks a monk named Martin Luther, and he looks at the system and he looks at scripture and he says, wait a second, I don't think that's what this is saying. And he pours over the scriptures and and he can't find anything that says that money or the church or your good works or anything like that could ever be enough to earn our way into eternity with God. Only Jesus can do that. Jesus is all that we need. And that rediscovery, it kicked off the Protestant Reformation. Suddenly, we didn't need a priest to talk to God on our behalf. We could talk to God ourselves. We didn't need to do enough good deeds or pay enough money to atone for our sins. Jesus already did that. And all we need to do is believe in him because we are saved by faith and not by works. This is a beautiful, true biblical truth. But over time, that concept got kind of twisted too. Because if I'm saved by grace alone, as long as I am born again, then how I live doesn't have to matter. I can do whatever I want, and Jesus is just going to forgive me. So another correction was needed. And in walked a people group called the Pietists. And the Pietists came, uh, came to Germany a little bit after Martin Luther was alive. And actually, Pietism, the, the Pietist theological commitments are what our denomination, the Covenant Church, were founded on. Um, so we, we love to talk about the Pietists. But the Pietists reminded us that being born again wasn't simply about praying one prayer and then you're good. It's about this new birth. It's about being reborn into an entirely different family with Jesus. It's not enough to have our minds changed. The evidence that we are following Jesus is that our lives are changed. Do you you hear that? It's a tea kettle. That's what the tea kettle sounds like, right? Jesus is pouring Nicodemus another cup as they continue continue their conversation. Thanks, Jess. I was practicing at home. I'm like, what does a tea kettle sound like? I think I got it. All right, so we're back in the room with Jesus and Nicodemus. Let's see what happens. So how can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Okay, Jesus, that's all well and good, but how does being born from above, like, even work? And I imagine Jesus or Nicodemus is getting a little sarcastic with Jesus. I mean, come on. Like, am I just supposed to crawl back up in there? And Jesus chuckles. Uh, Okay, let me use a different metaphor. It's like this. The wind blows here and there. But you never really know where it comes from, right? God's spirit is like that. It comes unexpectedly. But when the spirit blows in your heart, you are changed from the inside out like a newborn baby. You're born all over again. And Nicodemus cuts the sarcasm and he asks an earnest question. But Jesus, how? And here Jesus quips back. And you call yourself a teacher of Israel? Because even for those of us who have been in the faith a long time, can find it really hard to understand these things. We hear the words of Jesus. We hear the promise of the gospel. And we just don't get it. But but Jesus, how? How? 
How can this be? And I don't know about you, but it's a question I want to ask when I hear these kinds of things in scripture. Like, Jesus, I get the logic. Maybe I even think I understand the metaphor, but I have some questions. Yeah, 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 but how? And Jesus responds to Nicodemus's question and our questions with something unexpected. Snakes. He tells the Old Testament story about a bronze serpent that Moses lifted up over the people to cure snake bites. Seems kind of random. But the idea was that they, they looked at this image, people are getting bitten by snakes, and they looked at this image at the very thing that was afflicting them, the snake, and somehow looking at this snake saved them. Essentially, Jesus is saying, if you look at his death, your problem with death will be solved. Now stick with me for a minute. There was this idea back then that like cures like. Like cures like. So we've talked a lot about vaccines the last few years. If you think about how a vaccine works, a doctor injects your body with a, a small amount of the disease or something that mimics the disease that you're hoping to avoid, and your cells will produce antibodies that will ward off the real disease if you encounter it later. So it is here. Jesus is using a common concept, a common metaphor from his day to explain this spiritual concept. Like cures like. Bronze snake cures snake bite. Death cures death. We have a problem with death. And it's not just physical death that we have a problem with. It's all kinds of deaths in this life too. Relational death, death of dreams, we struggle with, with pain and trouble, with wounds and shame, addictions, disconnection from ourselves, from creation, from each other, from God. And all of these things, they are separation, they are disconnection. That is a living death. They need healing. And those struggles are real. And they won't all get healed in this life. But in some mysterious way, when we cast our eyes, when we put our trust in Jesus' death, like cures like. When we follow him to and through the cross, death cures death, and we are offered a different kind of life to live, a life that starts now and continues on into eternity. It's not a, a better version of our old life. It's not the answer to all of our problems. It's not even uh, necessarily an easy life or the promise of a pain-free life, but it is a new life. It is Christ's life. And it's a life in which we get to see and start that healing now and be part of the healing in others and in the whole world. And it's a life that lasts into eternity. So let's recap the conversation. Jesus says, you must be born again. And Nicodemus says, yeah, 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 but how? And Jesus says, first you die, and then you get reborn into a new life. You die to all the old self, all the old ways, the old identity, the old insecurity, the old sin, the old habits, the old wounds. You die to the old family situation and family structures, the old shame, the old ways of relating to the world, the old thought patterns that whisper that you are not good enough. You put all of those things to death with Christ, and by identifying with Christ's death, you are offered a whole new life. And it's a life in eternity with God, a life that doesn't start after we die. It's a life that we get to start and experience right now. And I don't know about you, but to me, that is really good news. If we follow Jesus to the cross, if we can believe this mysterious idea that somehow his horrible death helps us, then his death 
ultimately wins the day and cures our death. And not just physical death, but everything that causes death and sadness and brokenness and disconnection in this life too. It says this, For in this way God loved the world, that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, shall not die, but have eternal life. And the verse after it, verse 17, it's less famous, but it also has deep gospel truths in it. It says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And we'll kind of talk about what that word condemnation, that concept of condemnation means as we continue on in the Gospel of John. But the Greek term here used for to save or for salvation is a Greek word sozo, which literally means healing or to be made whole. The promise that we have in the gospel is healing and wholeness when we trust in Christ to do the work in us and in the whole world and of all all of our broken systems and institutions and bodies and families. And we don't know how Nicodemus interacted with that idea. After verse 9, he kind of goes back into the shadows for a while. Nicodemus does make two more very brief cameo appearances in John's gospel. We have John 7, when the Sanhedrin is plotting against Jesus, and and Nicodemus insists that he gets a fair trial. And then in John 19, Nicodemus is said to have joined Joseph of Arimathea to make sure that, that Jesus was embalmed and buried after he died. And we don't know if either incident indicates that he became a disciple of Jesus after all. It could have meant that he just cared about Jesus as a person, or he really cared that the law was carried out well. We don't know. What we do know is that if Nicodemus did come to follow Jesus, it happened because he died first. He died to the idea that his theological pedigree or weekly church attendance would get him life with God. He died to the idea that God grades on a curve and only saves the valedictorians. He died to the the sin and the shame, to the undoubtedly kind of the endless chatter in his mind that so many of us have that tell us that we aren't good enough. If Nicodemus entered God's kingdom, it's because he finally cast his eyes onto Christ's death and so received from that death healing, wholeness, a whole new birth. And that's the invitation for all of us, whether we've been in the church for decades or whether we're brand new here and we're just starting to ask some questions. It turns out that you and I and our whole communities and our our schools and our marriages and our families, our institutions, our friendships, our social structures, they're all meant to be born again, born from above. But here's the thing. Being born isn't where growth stops, right? A few years ago, I read about a study that they did in Germany with newborn babies, and researchers digitally graphed the the pitch and cadence of the cries of newborns from all kinds of different countries that spoke different kinds of languages, and they compared baby cry with baby cry, all of these babies from different parts of the world, and what they discovered was really stunning to them. They discovered that babies cry with an accent, So in France, a baby will inflect from low to high, like why? And in Germany, they'll inflect the other way from low to, from a high to low, way why? The intonation pattern exactly mimics the language pattern of the mother's mother tongue. So when we're in the the womb, we eavesdrop on our moms for nine months, 
And when we come out, we already have everything we need to learn how to speak just like she does. Every moment from our birth until our death, we are learning how to speak better and with more and more vocabulary. But at the start, right when we come out, our understanding of language is, is garbled and it's warbled and it's loud and it doesn't really sound all that much like language yet, but it is. And if you listen closely, you can pick up the mother's cadence and accent in every sound that a baby makes. When we are born, we are already complete humans, but we weren't made to stay babies. We were made to grow up. I think back to when I was younger in the faith, and I was so committed to the faith, but I can be so judgmental of people who thought differently from the way that I thought or had a different worldview from the one that I had or who weren't making the choices that I made. And I remember I would walk by people with cigarettes who were smoking cigarettes, and smoking cigarettes was not something that I thought was Christian in my mind, and so I looked down at them, and then I would cough at them. I'd be like, heh, heh. Because, like, what would Jesus do, right? Jesus would cough at them. <laughs> and I look back on that, and I'm like, oh, wow, okay. That's what spiritual babies do. But the hope is that babies would grow up. Spiritual babies aren't meant to stay babies. They're meant to mature and grow in the fruit of the Spirit that we talked about this summer. They're meant to grow in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. When you became born again, you may not experience full healing right away. Now, in a sense, you do, and in another sense, it's also a process that we grow into our whole lives. Not everyone does. You can be a 30-year-old Christian, or you can be a one-year-old Christian for 30 years. That's why sometimes Christians act like the worst people because we've let ourselves off the hook at just being born again and never matured into people who actually resemble Jesus. And in some circles, there is such an emphasis on being born again as if getting to the conversion part of the faith is the finish line. But being born again, that's just the beginning. From there, you can grow and you can learn to speak a whole new language, a language of eternity. But unlike physical growth, Spiritual growth is not automatic. It doesn't just happen to you. You have to participate in what God is doing in you. Because even though in our new birth we have everything that we need to learn God's language, our first language is still in us. We grew up speaking a whole different mother tongue, a language of sin and shame, of, of self-preservation and self-condemnation. So learning the new language of God, it might feel a little foreign to us, a little new, and we won't ever be fluent in this life. But in this life, we can begin to learn to speak it anyway. Now, who's ever learned a second language or a third language or tried? I took high school French for five years. I still, still don't speak it very well. But think about when you are learning a second language, what do you do? You take classes, you memorize vocab, you learn verb paradigms, you might watch a TV show or, or read a book in that language, but the most effective way of learning a new language is through total immersion. It's by surrounding yourself in the culture with people who speak it and then practicing, 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 and then making mistakes and then learning from those mistakes. It's about allowing people who are further along in the language than you are to correct your pronunciation sometimes. And if we want to learn the language of God, our invitation is to spend a lot of time with God, 
and a lot of time with God's people, doing the things that God and God's people do. Until eventually, God's ways become our ways, and God's people become our people, and God becomes our God. It's as simple and as hard as that. A good way to start is by opening God's word. Ask the Holy Spirit to show you something beautiful in it. Sometimes I'll just read a verse or two, and if something strikes me as beautiful, I will stop there, and I'll think about that concept or image all day. So you could stop there with something beautiful. If listening is easier than reading for you, I'd recommend the Dwell app. The Dwell app offers audio recordings of biblical books. You could start with the Gospel of John so that you can dive deeper into what we're learning about here on Sunday mornings. Spend time with the Holy Spirit and spend time with other people. Maybe join a life group or a ministry team. Other people who are also learning to speak this language so that you can do this in community like we were always designed to. Get to know other Christians, maybe during Soul Food today. Ask them what brought them to the faith. What what have they experienced of God lately? Encourage them with your story and with what you're learning too. And here's the good news. If you still don't get it, of course you don't. I like how writer Frederick Buechner put it. He said, when it comes to the forgiving and transforming love of God, one wonders if the six-week-old screecher knows all that much less than the Archbishop of Canterbury about what's going on. You don't have to know how to trust Christ fully yet. You don't have to know how to love like Jesus yet. You don't have to know how to fix all the world's problems yet. What you can do is trust in Christ's push. And the promise is that every time we put our faith in Christ's death and resurrection and new life in us, we are learning to speak the language that Christ has been speaking since before the creation of the world. And eventually... Being born again, it'll turn into our second nature. So let's pray. God, we thank you for this invitation into new life. Even though it is a concept that is so hard for us to understand, whether we've been in the faith for decades or we're just starting out, we thank you for your invitation to ask questions, to learn. And we thank you that you are doing the work in us. This week, I pray that you would teach us what it looks like to trust in you. You would call this passage to mind when we are learning how to be born again and to grow into maturity by your spirit. We pray that we would be people, that we'd be individuals in a church community that demonstrate your fruit in the world, that when people see us, they see you, that we resemble you, and that that would be an invitation to others to explore who you are too. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.